detective, thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Mount Careboard, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball, at the Crossroads, where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. And tonight, I have a very special episode for you. In fact, I think it's safe to say that we've never had an episode quite like this, uh, because in a moment, I'm going to turn the uh, microphone completely over to my co-host, Bill Van Vagel, uh, who is not here in fact, he is out in the wilds of Canada somewhere. He's been there uh, for a couple weeks now in the summer, but we've had so much content coming through that we've been able to uh, continue getting episodes out regularly. In fact, we still have a couple with Bill in them that will show up before he returns. But Bill, being the ever-conscientious co-host, and and really, he's a lot more than that here at Phantom Galaxy, uh, Bill is right there with me as we come up with all the ideas for the shows. He initiates a lot of them. He's always talking to everyone, and he sets up most of the guest spots that we end up doing. Uh, He's got so much energy for it, and he's always uh, always got such great ideas. He's been recording small reviews from uh, the woods (laughs) and sending them via his phone when he can. And in fact, he did the same thing last year, but we, uh, we got backed up with so many things last summer in terms of podcasts and stuff coming out that I never had an opportunity to release them they were sort of uh intended as filler and we never had any spaces to fill so what i've done is pulled all of bill's mini reviews and they're really cool they cover books they cover movies they cover tv shows and assembled them here for the next two hours and 50 minutes or thereabouts you can hear bill sort of unencumbered no one is cutting in on him no one is interrupting him pure unadulterated bill no co-hosts and uh, it's really cool, and I want to take this time sometimes, you know, when people aren't around, you can you can kind of say whatever you want about them, right? And in this case, I just want to reiterate my uh, great thanks for Bill as a co-host. Phantom Galaxy wouldn't be here right now, Bill, if, uh, if, if you hadn't come along and shown interest in reviving it, and if you hadn't been so energized and enthusiastic about having it revived. And uh, every co-host I've had back when this was Pop Culture Ninja and had Nathan Bell, and then when I was co-hosting with Chris Durham and Seth Dombach, every co-host I've had is great. Now, in the case of those three guys, I was already friends with them prior to doing this. And then when I started Phantom Galaxy, the venture with Bill was a little bit new because I didn't really know how we would interact. We'd, we'd recorded once together on Land of the Creeps, and we had been talking back and forth. But the awesome thing about Bill is he's so laid back. He's so sort of go with the flow, and yet... 
Uh, he's constantly kind of pushing new ideas and, hey, can we do this? Can we do that? And it's a, it's a really great partnership that we have. It's a lot. And it's also very um, – Bill is is a pretty humble guy, and he's never uh, – he, he doesn't balk at the opportunity to bring other people in, which I love. And that's what's really worked, I think, so well about the cast because we've had so many other great people be involved. And I don't think I need to tell any of you who've heard him on Land of the Creeps and every other podcast he manages to get on. What a great guy Bill is. Uh, but again, this taking his time out to uh, kind of check in and provide reviews and stuff. Just uh, uh, He's a committed guy. He's a committed family guy, and he's a committed friend, and he's, uh, he's a great co-host. So here, without further ado, from the wilderness of Canada, this covers 2021 and 2022, I give you... The Bill Van Vagel tapes. Hello, everyone. This is Bill Van Vagel on Phantom Galaxy. I'm solo right now because as we speak, I am camping. But I wanted to make sure that the audience got some movie reviews of movies I've seen recently. And so without ado, I will start with 2010's Gray Skies. Now, this is one, as many of you know, I love Tubi, and I was flipping around looking for sci-fi films because I want to make sure that the horror, the sci-fi, and the fantasy all get their due. So, this is called Gray Skies. Now, the IMDb synopsis is as follows. A group of old college friends reunite to relive their glory days by renting a beautiful cabin in the woods. As the sun sets on their first day in the cabin, bright flashes of light announce the arrival of a mysterious creature. These friends will have to outwit a force that is both inhuman and extremely intelligent in order to survive. The outcome will shock and amaze you as we come to realize we are not alone in the universe. Dun-dun-dun-dun. So... It starts out with a pretty good synopsis there. Longer than normal, and I could have abbreviated it, but I'd give you the full thing. Now, IMDb, it only has a 3.4. So when I see that rating on a movie, I go in with my own kind of tempered expectations, shall we say. And But you know me, with my movie uh, desires and thoughts, I go in, I give it a shot, and I tell you the honest truth with the answers of how I think it is. So that's what I'm going to give you. It was directed by Kai Blackwood, who has, hasn't done anything of significance that I made note of. Stars Michael Kornakia, who among his film credits is Hannah Montana the Movie and A Voice in Happy Feet and The Legion of Superheroes. I'm not sure if that's TV or a movie. You guys will probably know better than I will. There's Thela Brown. There's Stacy Jorgensen, who's not much known as an actor, but was the producer of Color Out of Space and Daniel Isn't Real. And Color Out of Space, for me, was my top genre film of last year. So she's got a little bit of skill to her that isn't in the acting per se, but she is in the industry. And Jeff Lorch, who is in that TV show Masters of Sex. It's actually a pretty big ensemble cast of eight friends that get together. They're all friends that were from university. And they're getting together 
years later to, you know, just kind of enjoy themselves at a cottage, get away, smoke a little weed, drink a little drink, you know, catch up, sit around the fire, do all the kinds of things. But they aren't necessarily 20 years old anymore. You know, like they're in their early 30s, I'm going to say. So it opens with a woman screaming in bed and a wound on her stomach. And she reveals she is pregnant and her boyfriend is there, then walks into the woods ominously and doesn't come back. Or we're assuming he doesn't come back because the movie cuts, fades away, and the opening credits roll in. And once the story gets going, a group of friends and family rent a remote cottage outside of Los Angeles. And the owner of the cottage asks them to leave the keys. The last renters left without giving them back. So that you know when you get that kind of a clue, it ain't good. Let's just put it that way. There's lots of dark, ominous music. Everybody's drinking, smoking, playing music, chilling. Yet, based on the camera angles, you know something is watching them. They all have had usually some drugs or some drinks. They all got their senses up and they go outside at night and on the porch or on the deck, they watch shooting stars and they're absolutely beautiful. Except one of them fall, sees a shooting star and one of them goes looking, wants to know where the shooting star ended up because being city folk, they don't see this kind of thing very often. So they get curious and, you know, maybe the, Devil's lettuce has gotten to them, and they go out walking to find it. Now, one friend goes missing, and they are later found in the forest covered in mud. They don't remember why, and they don't know how they got there. All right. Now, some of the acting is actually better than expected when I saw the IMD rating, especially by Kranakia. He's obviously an actor who's got some experience both on stage and on the silver screen, and you can kind of tell. Some of the others show their acting inexperience, but Kranakia shows that he's been in some higher-level production. There's a large build-up with sounds, and let's just say there are aliens involved, and you get a first-person point of view. As the movie progresses, various group members are taken and harmed, and it becomes a survival film. Who's going to be under the lair of the aliens and who's going to fight them off and survive? Something is coming. Bright lights and the group is holed up in the cottage. Okay. They came out around the time of Fire in the Sky, this movie did. So this is obviously a lesser version of Fire in the Sky. That's a real quality film. Now this one I'm not going to say is a trauma level bottom of the barrel but it is not fire in the sky okay now you're gonna i'm not gonna give much more okay because if it's on tubi i was not at the point where it wasn't worth my time i wanted you guys to go out and watch it if you know you like this kind of film you like your sci-fi you like your alien films so you have to ask yourself do they all survive who is out there why have group members been abducted we don't know why. There's a very interesting abduction scene involving probing. That's all I'm going to say, all right? There's a decent, it's a decent film for the budget, okay? 
So the budget isn't huge, but I think they actually maximize the effects that they have for what they spent. It does follow a lot of horror and sci-fi tropes. And those of you that have watched a lot of genre films will be able to pick those out pretty quick. But not a terrible film. That doesn't sound so good. It's better than I anticipated. I gave this a 6 out of 10. It is worth a watch. And I'd say if you're trolling around Tubi like I tend to do from time to time, I think you guys could do a lot worse than watch Grey Skies. Lately, I've been doing either sports books or fantasy books. I'm going to do one on the horror side now, but not like a supernatural or a paranormal or a vampire film. This one's more of a gritty type horror book. And this is called The Lost by Jack Ketchum, published by Dorchester Publishing in 2001. Now, Jack Ketchum is an author that is really either a love him or a hate him. He can get very graphic in his depictions of violence, but he's also an easy read in terms of getting through the book. He kind of writes in a style of a Stephen King where it's not overly complicated. You're not going to get tripped up in the words. The concepts aren't out there. You know, they're somewhat relatable to people, but they're quite horrific in the events that happen. Okay. Now, Jack Ketchum has done a lot of other books that became uh, movies. Uh, the Girl Next Door, uh, Offspring they made. I think Dead Girl was one of his books. So he's done quite a few. And I honestly, I'm not a, a, a fast reader. I'm one of those readers that tries to take it all in. So it usually takes me a bit longer than the average person because I try to soak as many in so I don't have to flip back to remember character names, etc. I read through this one relatively quickly. It's not that long. It's about 394 and 395 pages. I'll give you a synopsis that they have on the back. It was the summer of 1965. Ray, Tim, and Jennifer were just three teenage friends hanging out in the campground drinking a little. But Tim and Jennifer didn't know what their friend Ray had in mind. And if they'd known, they, would have thought, they wouldn't have thought he was serious. Then they saw what he did to the two girls in the neighboring campsite and he knew he was dead serious. So it's about Tim, who's kind of one of those guys in a smaller town that's got a bit of a Napoleonic complex. Napoleonic complex. He's a small man in a small town, but he thinks he's bigger. He doesn't quite fit in in terms of academics. He wasn't strong in school, but he had a close-knit group of friends that he wanted to hang with. And they went up to a cabin camping one time in the 1960s. And let's just say some events happen when he goes out that were very explicitly described in the book. And depending on your temperament, it may not be for you. I like this kind of book, so it didn't bother me at all. I like Jack Ketchum's style. I've read Offspring, and every time I go to the thrift shop, I'm always looking for Jack Ketchum novels. So if anybody has any extras they want to mail to me, I'll take them. So Jack Ketchum books got a bit of grit. They got a bit of sandpaper. But there's also lots of characters. There is a storyline involving them years later and the ramifications of what happens as a result of their actions. I know I'm getting a bit vague, but I don't want to give it away because when it happens, you'll be like, holy shamoli, okay? 
And after it happens, it comes back years later. And then there's separate storylines involving friends and romance and peer pressure and drugs and the goings about in a small town and the presence of police officers. They were investigating things that happened years before. And there's a comeuppance and a coming around of the actions that they had that affects them severely. And people, the last 30, 50, 75 pages are riveting. I really like this book. I thought I think Jack Ketchum is a really good author. He will not be everybody's bag. Now, I'm not going to say it's not going to give you nightmares. It's not going to be like that. But it is grittier. So I would say get this book if you see it at the library or the thrift shop and otherwise you're going to miss an opportunity to read a good book. I give this a solid eight and a half out of 10. Thank you and enjoy yourself. I will now review 2016's Ghost Team, a comedy thriller that I found on Tubi. All I did was type in the keyword ghost and I was looking around. There's lots of cheesy ghost stories. There's lots of actually high quality ghost stories on there. But I wanted one that was a little bit fun because I'm watching it at about 6 in the morning and I don't want one that will give me the shivers or make me think too much. So I found this one. It's an hour and 23 minutes. And the IMDb synopsis is, A paranormal obsessed man mounts his own investigation into the beyond with his depressed best friend, misfit nephew, a cable access medium, and an over-eager security guard. Hmm. Sounds interesting. Now, the rating is only 4.7, but oftentimes when it gets a rating like that with this kind of movie, it's because people aren't that fond of horror slash comedies. They don't like comedy in their horror, or they don't like horror in their comedy. So I went in with this with eyes wide open, because sometimes these movies turn out to be some hidden gems, or at least one that's an enjoyable watch. So it's directed by Oliver Irving, who hasn't really done anything else of note. I think he'd only done one other film. It has John Hader, who which most people would know from Napoleon Dynamite, but of also also in Blades of Glory and many other films. David Krumholtz, who was in, among others, the Santa Claus with Tim Allen, and he was a voice in Sausage Party, which I still have to see. I've always wanted to see the Sausage Party. And Justin Long, who you've seen in the TV show Ed, you've seen him in the Jeepers Creepers, he was in one of the Diehards. And he's obviously a pretty good actor because he's keep working as he's getting older. And Amy Sedaris, who's been in a lot of films. And Melanie Diaz, who, among other things, has been in the TV show Charmed. And The Belko Experiment, which I quite like. So it has a few names here. It's kind of an ensemble cast of people in their mid to late 20s up until their mid 30s. So what it's basically about is... John Hader works at a, a job at a photocopy shop, kind of a, an office supply store. And he's also in, interested in the paranormal. He watches those ghost hunter paranormal type shows. And he's got a keen interest. And one of the local shows actually has an advertisement that they're looking for a new team member. And you have to bring in a, a video and evidence that you're able to do the duties that a ghost hunter would be able to do. So he heads up a team to try to find ghosts. But he does that because at his job, he had a customer come in that wanted photocopies done to keep off the property. And making small talk with the customer, Hader finds out that he thinks one of the 
aspects to his property is that it could be haunted. So, you know, red flags go off to him and he goes about assembling this team, okay? So among the members of the uh, team are Justin Long, who's a store security guard, a failed police officer that actually didn't get into the police service. He's failed because he hasn't even gotten in yet, but he's still young enough that he could. Uh, Maloney Diaz is a customer who is predispositioned to the paranormal. She kind of likes it. And, and there is Paul W. Downs, another actor, who works in an electronics store, who kind of gets them all their supplies that they need. Uh, the, you know, the glasses and the sound equipment and all that sort of stuff. And David Kumholtz is Hader's best friend, who's convinced his fiance left him because she was taken by aliens. And has put him in a bit of a depression, okay? Amy Sedaris plays a medium who's been at it for quite a while and has various levels of success. But for Justin Long and the boys and John Hader, they're just happy to have somebody who seems to be legit that can speak to spirits. So this is comedic, but not over-the-top comedy, okay? This isn't... I would actually put this as a thriller horror first with doses of comedy. Because there is creepiness, there's an eeriness. The plot line revolves around ghosts and the paranormal. So it's not like a Saturday Night Live skit that's about ghosts. It is legit about ghosts, but it is on the lighthearted side, okay? So once this team is assembled, they get themselves all into a van and they go out to the property. Now, the movie for the first little bit is pretty good. And in the middle part, I find it gets really slow. Things are building up. The story's building up. They're gathering supplies. They're going to the property. They're searching around. It's out in the country. I found this on the slow side. And I did have to make sure that I had a cup of hot tea while I was drinking to get me some stimulus. So the middle part, you just have to wade your way through, okay? Now, the team all of a sudden detects something on their equipment. It gets audio that it can't quite decipher, but they're pretty sure it comes from something that's not of this world. And they get weird video. And their car batteries are dead when they decide they're spooked out and they want to leave. You know, it's the trope of the car won't start. But here they think it's because of the paranormal, not because somebody slashed their car. There's lots of banter between the characters, lots of back and forth. Downs' character uh, uh, is talking to Justin Long. He thinks he's a failed cop, and he's always kind of belittling him. And Justin Long's kind of defend himself as, you know, he needs to go back to school to get into the police service. And, you know, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say locker room kind of chat, but it's, you know, it's kind of of that ilk, okay? But all of a sudden, people start going missing. The medium goes missing. The best friend goes missing. And they go out searching for it. One of them thinks they've seen a zombie or a ghost in one of the uh, buildings. Things are starting to ramp up, okay? So the paranormal activity ramps up. But let's just say these investigators find out more than they bargained for. And I'm going to leave it at that. Because any saying any more ruins the movie. Or gives away the movie. So... Give it a look. I will say that the last act of this film is probably the best part of the movie, okay? There's a fun action sequence involving Justin Long, and I'll leave it at that. 
he brings out his inner Chuck Norris. Let's just say that it attempts to be a heartwarming story, like underdogs of underdogs and misfits coming together to reach a goal. And there's a decent use of the song Dreamweaver by Gary Wright, which had been for me dormant since Wayne's World. Dreamweaver, I believe. You know, I don't. You don't mean to hear me sing, but that gets played a couple times, and it's kind of one of the themes to the movie. Is it a fantastic movie? No. Does it have the right intentions when it was made? I do think so. Is it one that you could show with if you have kids or early teens that want to kind of dip their foot into horror? Yeah, absolutely. It's not going to scare the pants off them, but it does have a creepiness to it. I did for a while there think, no, 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 I'm not going to like it. And by the end, I had a smile on my face. So I give this a 6 out of 10. Not a bad little film, but you just have to stick with it because there are some slow points. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. So take it at your peril, but it's it's not bad. Okay, you could see a lot worse. Enjoy Ghost Team. It's on Tubi. And on to a 2021 horror zombie film that I saw on Prime Video, just to show that I do use all the different streaming services. This is 2021's Dead Again that gets a 4.2 rating on IMDb. But you know what? I'm willing to give a zombie film a shot because every once in a while, because there's a lot of junk, but every once in a while you get a good one. Now, this one is only an hour 15 minutes, so it doesn't tax a lot of your time. And it's an easy watch. The synopsis is as follows. In a rural village where crime is non-existent, a police sergeant is retiring out of boredom. He has sent a young recruit fresh out of police school. All hell is about to break loose in this apocalyptic horror film. So this one is lower budgeted. I hadn't heard of it. I found it. I saw it was 2021. Thought I'd give it a shot. Like pretty much all my films, I'll just give it a shot. The director's name is Stephen M. Smith, who... I'd never heard of, and among his films is one called Tales of the Supernatural, Naked Alfred the Doll. Well, if that doesn't inspire confidence, I don't know what else will. (laughs) It stars Mark Wingett, who was in Quadrophenia, which is a pretty high-level film now. I think it's a pretty small role that he had. And he was in Breaking Glass, among others. Debbie Terrier who was in Scare Attraction, which I saw. Uh, Sonera Angel, who was also in Scare Attraction. But it also includes Donald Trump and Boris Johnson in news clips. But (laughs) they do get credit in this film. (laughs) So it opens with Britain and Europe being hit by an epidemic. There's newsreel footage of Trump and Boris Johnson followed by a woman being chased by a zombie in rural England, okay? Now, this is lower budgeted, and you can tell that right away, but it's got a bit of a spirit to it, which has made me want to keep watching, okay? A young police officer joins the police force with a veteran officer in a small rural station. The veteran officer tells tales of 17 years ago in... Pritchfield, which is the town they're in, uh, where a light came from the sky and objects went missing. 
So they're doing the rounds. The veteran officer, P.S. Cooper, played by Tony Fadil, is basically showing the young officer, Elliot Cable, what's going on in the town. He knows everybody in the town. It's a small town, village, call it what you will, in rural England. And at the beginning, the young cop accosts a man for public urination against a tree. And the veteran cop basically says, oh, let him go. I know who this guy is. I told you to pee on that tree, not this tree. So you're like, okay, it's going to be a little bit quirky, okay? There's comedic horror with Buddy Cop in in the in the mix here. Yet it's still a horror film, okay? So it's lighthearted, trying to be a bit in the vein of Shaun of the Dead. Obviously not at that level, but with that sensibility to it, okay? Zombies come out, attack a young couple, and the two cops try to solve the problem and deal with the situation, okay, to various levels of success. People start to become infected, and zombies come out, and this small sleepy town, which has had not much more than maybe a few break-ins or, as we saw earlier, previous, previously, public urination, is now dealing with a zombie outbreak. Okay, so it's obviously lower budget. There's nothing groundbreaking here, okay, obviously. But it's made with the love of the genre. You can tell that the person that made this film, Mr. Smith, had watched many a a zombie and horror film. He knew the tropes. He knew what happens in these kind of films. And he wanted to make his own vision for this type of film. It's got a decent musical score. The older officer is quite quirky. And he's content with kind of his life. He just wants to ride it out and eventually retire. He's a horror fan. The movie opens with him uh, making something, a joke about PC Brody and Jaws. And Elliot Cable, who plays Brody, has no understanding. And so Fadil's like, oh, come on, guy. You don't know who Officer Brody, you don't know Brody and Jaws. And so obviously... You know, there's links to other horror films. It becomes a survival film where a group of survivors get holed up into one spot and they have to fight off the zombies. And you have to see who gets picked off, who gets eaten, who gets infected, and who survives. Okay? And intermittently, there is a point of view shots in red, which actually isn't a bad little effect. Okay? I don't want to give away the ending if you want to watch the film. It's with when you take away the credits, the runtime is only 67 minutes. So it's essentially a longer Tales from the Crypt or a Mulder and Scully episode in X Files. Okay. So it's not going to kill you time wise. I gave this a three out of five. Uh, so that would convert to a six out of 10. Maybe that's being generous. Maybe a five and a half would be more accurate. But you know what? It's kind of fun. I've seen worse. It's got a certain sensibility to it. And it is current. It's a 2021 film. So if you're looking for something to put on in the background while you're doing laundry or folding laundry or you're getting dinner ready, you're cooking your ground beef or whatever, this is the kind of thing you put on in the background. It's not going to put you off. It's not going to make you stick to the screen every minute, catching every detail. You kind of know what's going to happen, but you want to see how the characters play play it, play it, and how the story plays itself out. So give it a shot. It's not the worst thing in the world. And 
maybe it'll make you think about the world where we live in a different way. And so for my next review, for the last little while, at least, you know, from time to time, I talk about baseball. And baseball has many elements of science to it. You know, spin rates, launch angles, batting averages, figuring out using analytics how to better pitch, better hit, better strategize. So I decided to watch a documentary on an interesting baseball personality some of you might have heard of if you're a baseball fan, especially if you live in New York or you've been watching for quite a while. This is a show, a documentary put on by Major League Baseball Productions Presents Billy. Uh, in 2017, about Billy Martin, the five-time manager of the New York Yankees, but that's not all that he does, okay? He has, the movie goes over his entire life. This was put out in 2017 and narrated, and narrated by actor John Turturro, which many of you would know from many of his great films. This is a bio, biographical documentary. And while it doesn't go deep in terms of acting, it's a documentary. I thought this one was pretty good, and I'll give you a little bit of an overview of the highlights of the film. So it goes over his life, kind of starting in humble beginnings, and we find out that he was a really good high school player. But he had a little bit of a personality clash with some people. He would get into fights and, with his teammates or other teams, and he got kicked off his own team. So he didn't get drafted to the major leagues, even though he may very well have had the skill and the drive to do so. It's his irascibility, as you might say, the, the way in which he rubs people the wrong way that prevented him from getting drafted. So he signed with an independent team because no major league team would, inter would be interested in him. But the independent team he signed with had a young, not a young manager, but an inexperienced manager called Casey Stengel. And if you know your baseball, Casey, Casey Stengel went on to manage the New York Yankees. And when he got the Yankees job, he brought along Billy Martin. And Billy became fast friends with a lot of his teammates, including Mickey Mantle, who's infamous for his abilities, his home runs, his womanizing, and his boozing. And he also became good friends with Whitey Ford. The three of them used to love going to New York and the clubs and hearing the crooners sing at the nightclubs and also been known to have a few wobbly pops and whiskeys along the way, okay? It covers, through his career, he was a good hitter, especially in the playoffs. But his career didn't last as long as he probably would have liked. And he got into management. Not management as in the general manager, but manager of the teams, okay? The coach, in other words. And he went on to manage the Tigers, the Twins, the Rangers. He would get in fights with management because he basically, you knew what you were getting when you got Billy Martin, okay? He would tell you what he thought, like it or lump it. And when you hired him, you knew what you got with him. For example, he got fired, I think it was from the Tigers, because he got into a fight with the owner about the song being played over the seventh inning. He wanted, thank God I'm a country boy, and the owner wanted it to be, take me out to the ball game. Sorry, I think that was the Rangers. <laughs> so he got fired in the middle of a game because he switched up the seventh inning song, okay? 
He got hired by George Steinbrenner, and that became a love-hate relationship where they were hired and fired ten times. Or, sorry, five times. And each time there was a reason, legitimate. Some of it was political, just in terms of office politics. Some of it was personal, and some of it was performance-based. And anybody that is from New York and knows Bring Billy back, he always came back within two years of when he got fired. He also got into fights with his players, including Reggie Jackson, very famously pulled him from a playoff game. And then the next game, Reggie went out and hit three home runs. So he got results, but you know he rubbed people the wrong way because he felt that he as the manager should have more pull. But Reggie got on well with management. He thought they were kind of going behind his back. What I like about this documentary is they talk to a lot of his former players, his family, people within the game. For example, names like Rod Carew, Ricky Henderson, Tony LaRussa, the manager, Reggie Jackson himself. But they also talk to the family. There's quite a bit of interviews with Billy's son and uh, former wives. So, And his agent got interviewed quite a bit to get now of course they're going to give the side that glows billy in a good light i found it was fairly even-handed and then they get to his post baseball life once he was fired for the fifth time from the yankees he said i'm going to get a farm i'm really going to get myself a piece of land and kind of settle down but he really wanted back and after his fifth firing it seemed like he was going to get back with the yankees and then he had a car accident and died now, there's mystery surrounding how he died. Well, not how he died. It was a car crash and it turned over. But who was driving the car? Him and a buddy were drinking at a bar. The buddy says Billy was driving. A lot of people think the friend was driving. Nice little doc, uh, note afterwards is that in the, uh, at the funeral, Billy's son was upset. He was in the pew, you know, crying. And someone took him by the hand, brought him outside and said, look at the crowd. They loved your dad. He was a good man. The son later found out that that man was Richard Nixon. So he obviously had friends in high places as well. He's obviously uh, had certain political leanings, but I don't think that that didn't play into this at all. It's, I thought, actually a fair documentary because it showed both sides of Billy. There's lots of uh, footage of playtime, of him managing. They, they kind of asked all over the time, all over the place in terms of getting firsthand documentation. And the question becomes, is Billy a Hall of, Fame, Hall of Famer, both as a player and as a manager? You're kind of left to leave that up to yourself to decide. I really like this. Even if you don't like sports, as a human interest piece, as someone who has struggled with drinking all his life, as someone who had a fiery personality, as someone who liked soap opera-ish things in terms of getting hired and fired, of fooling around on wives, of loving women, of just being a person, but he also had a gentler side, a generous side, a side that the general public didn't always see that was kind of revealed. I gave this a 7.5 out of 10. I thought this was well worth it. And I found it on YouTube. Just type in MLB Productions Present Billy from 2017 and you'll find it. So yeah, go out and watch it. It's worth your while. 
And as I said, even if you're not a baseball fan, just from a production standpoint and from a human interest standpoint, this is worth a watch. As you guys know, the way that I do things, I am always on the lookout in the search for fun sci-fi and horror movies that might have escaped a lot of people's viewing or haven't seen for many years or have been purposely forgotten about. <laughs> and sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes there's movies that kind of get fall between the cracks. And you don't know what you're going to get until you watch them, and that's the case with this one. I watched 1953's The Magnetic Monster. Okay? So The Magnetic Monster is one that I had never heard of. I went in absolutely, completely blind. Uh, I figured it was maybe a, a monster movie. You know, somebody goes comes down from outer space and has touched some kind of radiation and they become a monster, or it's some kind of Red Scare film. Let's just see how this plays out. The IMDb synopsis is, The Office of Scientific Investigation sends AMEN agents to investigate reports of unusual magnetic activity in various communities. Well, can you get a, a more vague synopsis that tells you really absolutely nothing? <laughs> That's how I found that. And the poster really doesn't give you much either. And like some of those 1950s sci-fi posters are fun and they have to sell the movie because the movie is absolute junk. This does neither. So I really didn't know what I was going, which actually kind of added to the intrigue because I didn't know anything about it. So it's a United Artists film. So at least United Artists was a studio that has a little bit of a backing. It has some cachet to it. So that kind of perked my interest. Now the director is Kurt Siomak. And actually Kurt Siomak has quite a few movies of some repute, including The Invisible Man Returns and I Walked with a Zombie, which isn't a bad film. So the man has done some films of some quality. It stars Richard Carlson, who was from such films as The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I'm sure many of you know, and It Came from Outer Space, another one that's pretty big in the sci-fi and horror community. But he was in a whole string of sci-fi films of various levels of quality and budgets. So, I mean, it's one of those things where you knock on a hundred doors, one of them's going to open. I think that's the case with him. So, the OSI, the Office of Scientific Investigation, with Amen, and not Amen as in pray to God, they are literally A, capital A, men, who investigate scientific anomalies which harm the Earth. So, they're this government or quasi-government organization that's set up to go out and if somebody seemingly calls from the general public with some kind of irregularity that has to do with a scientific reasoning, this organization goes and seeks it out. So, you know, I, I don't know if it was an offshoot of the FBI or some kind of internal revenue service or some sort of police function, I don't know. But it seems that if it's one of those big organizations, the general public can call them. Or the local police get a call that they think should be subdivided off to the OSI. So they go out and investigate, okay? So this movie has a bit of a foothold in hard science. 
This isn't one of those Robbie the Robot films. This, this has a bit of science, at least at its facade to it, okay? So it, this movie also has King Donovan, who was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1956. That's not bad. Uh, Gene Byron, who was in Invisible Invaders and later on the TV show Police Woman. And Henry Ellerby, who was in House of Usher, which I quite like that film. And a version of Inherit the Wind. Now, I don't think it's the one that is more famous. I think it was probably either a, a smaller production or a TV show based on it. But it's still a good film. Okay. So, uh, well, yeah, it still is. So the OSI agents investigate a department store. They get a call. Okay. Something's going on at this department store. Okay. Which has been magnetized and the machines are starting to run on their own. The clocks have stopped. The boss initially blames an employee. The employee said he's done everything properly. He's wound the clocks. He can't understand why they're not working. Things are sticking to washing machines and stoves and such. And all their tools are out of whack. They call the OSI. Now, the, as this is going, a narrator gives scientific information. And the story and background evolve. Okay, So it kind of, it's kind of a, a story in progress as you go. The OSI then investigates an ill passenger on an airplane. So there's this uh, scientist who's on an airplane and he starts getting sick and they call in the OSI. Okay. This passenger has a briefcase that is radioactive with serenium. Does anybody here know what serenium is? I was not great in high school biology. Maybe you guys are. And did an alpha particle experiment with it that became unipolar, magnetic, and became unstable. This scientist was a nuclear scientist. So we've got the scientist who's ill, who's performed, you know, kind of secretish operations and experiments with nuclear, um, uh, nuclear particles. Something's going on. We want to investigate more, okay? So the doctor's assistant became infected with when exposed to these nuclear particles, okay? So the assistant, prior to getting on the plane, had become infected. This just adds more intrigue. So there's a strong use of science. There's more in-depth than actually I expected, okay? And this is one of the quotes I, I wrote it down. In nuclear research, there is no place for lone wolves. I guess we have to work as a team in science and hard science. Although we know that in the various movies we've watched, they don't always work as a team, but that's how they're playing this off. It shows the strength and dangers of nuclear energy. So there probably is a little bit of that foreboding of if you don't use nuclear energy properly or if it goes into the wrong hands, stuff hits the fan. Okay, The element becomes magnetized and then and it grows they've got to stop this increase of the element we've got for all of mankind we've got to stop it from coming this movie combines hard science with a sci-fi thriller film the element needs to be destroyed and so the heads of various agencies and police forces get together in this office 
they're they're kind of perplexed. They don't know how to solve this. The United States doesn't necessarily have a facility to solve this problem. But don't worry. The Canadian government is coming to the rescue. They have a plant in Nova Scotia that has the capabilities of splitting the atom. Like, why Nova Scotia? Maybe because it's on an island and it's a safer place to do this kind of thing. It's not attached to the land per se. I don't know. Maybe this was funded partly by Canadian backing. I don't know, but they did it for this. Now, will the element be destroyed? Will humanity be saved? I'm not going to give you the rest. But let's just say it actually was better than I expected. As some of you know, sci-fi wasn't necessarily my bag growing up. But I've really come to appreciate it in the last couple of years. And I've always liked a good science movie that involved a mystery. This one had a lot of all those elements to it. This becomes a police serial. And there's also a, a strong film noir element. Because that would kind of fit with this time frame of when it was uh, created. So, you know what? It's not that bad. I dare say it's a good film that people have either forgotten about or the distribution was poor or the quality of the film hasn't been saved over the years. The main actor, Richard Carlson, is channeling his inner Humphrey Bogart, I wrote down. <laughs> he's got a little bit. You know, sometimes he wears a hat or he's just calm, cool, and collective under pressure. There's better sets, costumes, and effects than I expected. The ending... It's very dramatic, and it has almost a Frankensteinian element, if you can kind of foreshadow where that's going, okay? Science, when done with hate and fear, has dangerous consequences. That's kind of what I took out of this. You know, there's not a lot of character development in, in this, but for what it is, which is basically a B-movie that you would probably pay a very inexpensive rate for on a Saturday afternoon to watch in 1953. I dug it, okay? And I usually don't go for the hard science films, but I didn't mind this one at all. I, I give this a 7 out of 10. And if you're ever trolling around the various streaming services and you find the magnetic monster and you like horror sci-fi, this one might just be right up your alley. And it's only an hour 16, so it's only 76 minutes. It's not going to kill your time-wise. So, yeah, give this one a shot. I would definitely say The Magnetic Monster is worth a watch. So I will be reviewing the 2021 horror film, Antidote. Now, this was an interesting one that I came across. The poster is quite interesting. It has a naked woman that's covered up. It's not explicit or anything. And she's floating in a vial that of a brownish liquid that someone obviously will be excreting into a needle. And it was the poster. I know I've been sucked in by posters before. Nathan and I have talked about many over the years that have been sucked, both of us, in. But I'm a sucker for it, and I watched it. And the IMDb gave it a 5.1, which, you know, all things considered, I've seen a lot worse. So I thought, okay. I'll give this one a shot. The synopsis is, a young woman is held captive in an underground medical facility where selected individuals are perpetually mutilated and then healed using a secret antidote. 
sounds vague. It could have all kinds of possibilities. Let's just see where it takes us. It's directed by Peter Daskaloff, who hasn't done a lot that I've heard of, but one of the ones he did do that I thought had an interesting title was called Sex and the Single Alien. So <laughs> at least Mr. Daskaloff has a sense of humor when he names his films. It has Ashlyn Yenny. It has Louis Mandalore, who has been in a few films that you might have heard of. He was in My Big Fat Greek Wedding 1 and 2, and Rambo, Last Blood. And Augie Duke, who was in the movie Spring, which actually was a pretty darn good film. And Wild Boar uh, from last year, Barney Burnham's Wild Boar. It was not a very good film. But let's see how the movie plays out. Now, the movie opens with a man dead hanging in an industrial unit. We don't know why. How he got there, what caused him to die. Well, we know what caused him to die, but what we don't know what led up to his being hung there. Now, in the next scene, a woman is taken to a hospital for an appendicitis. She's laying in bed with her husband. She rises over in pain. The husband sends her to the hospital. And then a woman is taken, and then she is found handcuffed to a bed and imprisoned in her room after the operation is over. So this could go in many directions. Is this uh, uh, one where women are abducted? Is, is this one where there's human trafficking involved? Is this one where it becomes like a hostile type film? The possibilities are endless. This could be a cool hospital film. I had to keep watching. So there are doctors around that aren't giving her much in the way of information. They just say, here, take these drugs to kind of calm yourself down. It'll heal the pain. And we're here to treat you. Now, she's obviously livid. She doesn't know what the heck is going on, where her family is, why she's in this facility that she didn't sign herself up for. The doctors are very cold. And there are other patients here. There's a whole hallway full of patients. They're being held against their will. And the lead character, Yenny, is trying to figure out what is going on here. Why is she here? What is happening? So Ashlyn Yenny is the actress. She plays a character called Sharon Berkeley. So it becomes a mystery thriller. We know something sinister is going on, but we don't know why. We don't know the purpose behind the doctors doing this to multiple patients. We don't know where this facility is. So it looks like it was it's a hospital that has obviously either been abandoned or someone else has purchased it, an evil corporation, and they're doing things there that is away from the public's eye. The doctor, Louis Mandalore, sounds a little bit like Stephen McCaddy you know, from Pontypool. He has a bit of that raspiness, yet calm, stone-faced, which I really liked. I thought he was the best actor in the film. There's some scenes of gore. It's basically, patients are there being operated on for no particular reason and are given this brownish serum and are being healed quicker than should be. The patients are basically lab rats to this solution. So there's excessive operations going on. Okay. 
she's connected because of her boyfriend, Yenny is. So there's a link between the boyfriend that we saw at the beginning being hung and Yenny, Sharon Berkeley. Okay, so little increments of information happen as the story's going along. Okay, I want to be a bit vague and tiptoe around some things because if you're going to watch it, I'm not going to give you everything. Okay, what I will tell you is there's elements of a survivor film or a torture film. There's elements of gore, but there's also elements of a police serial because the police are trying to figure out what's going on. And there's also psychological elements. And that's basically where I'm going to stop. Questions you have to wonder. Does she escape? Does she figure out why she is being held? What is the connection to her boyfriend? Because that will play out as it goes. You know, the mystery aspect was interesting. But ultimately, I didn't care about the characters. And found the acting, other than Mandalore, rather meh. Mind of rather average. Okay, and that plays out based on if you look at the cast, you won't have heard of any. Now, I know in years past, if you look at a lot of horror films, particularly in the early to mid 80s, you won't have heard of a lot of them at the time. So that I wouldn't strike that against it, but it's less than inspiring other than I found Mandalore really good. And there is a moralistic angle to the movie, and that's. Again, all I'm going to say, because you want to discover that, okay? Everything gets tied together. There's interactions between some of the patients, and some of them have different motives. And we see if there's plans to escape or not, how the other patients are treated relative to Sharon Berkeley. And we find out clues about Berkeley's life that kind of give us why the ultimate result happens, okay? I give this a 5 out of 10. I'm almost bang on with what the people on IMDb said. Not the worst movie I've ever seen, but far from the best movie I've ever seen. Watch it. I wouldn't say at your peril, because it's better than a Z-grade film, but it's not at the level of, you know, like visiting hours, or even the dorm that dripped blood. You know, those kind of, you know movies that are middle of the road okay so it go give it a look watch it enjoy it but at the end you might be left unsatisfied with a few things and now it's time for me to talk about not a movie or a tv show or even a new album that i listen to it's time for me to talk about a book that i just read because at various times over this podcast we talk about books of different genres and different styles one that I just read was called Dead Famous, written by Ben Elton. Here's what Wikipedia does to describe this film. Dead Famous came out in 2001, is a comedy-slash-whodunit novel by Ben Elton, in which ratings for a reality TV show, very similar to Big Brother, rocket when a housemate is murdered. Unlike a typical whodunit, Elton does not reveal the identity of the victim until around halfway into the book. And the murderer is not discovered until literally the last couple pages. I read this book relatively quickly. Like, I am not the fastest of readers. And I read this, uh, it took me about a week. But I only 
read for a couple hours a day. Yeah, I don't. I just don't have the time. I don't even get a couple hours. Maybe twenty minutes here, thirty minutes there, twenty minutes here. So when I do between watching movies, doing podcasting, watching sports, and dealing with family and my daughter, I try to sneak onto the hammock and get some reading time in. So that's what I did. What I liked about this book is it sets it out. It's basically a modernized Agatha Christie. You've got this TV show called House Arrest in Britain, which is basically a carbon copy of uh, what's that show there that where they um, Big Brother. Sorry, I rambled on. Big Brother. It's a, a British version of Big Brother. And you've got this series of people who are in the house. So there's like eight people. And at the beginning, the first page, what I appreciate about the book is they give all the characters what their basic background is and what role they're going to play in the in the book. Okay. Now, this book is about 20 years old, but it's just as relevant then as it is now. Because those shows are still popular to these days. I don't understand them. I don't watch them. I'm not making a judgment. Those who like them, I understand why you like them. I just think that they're kind of goofy. But that works for this book. Because each one, of, each one of the characters has their own background and their stories. And where they come from. And their different motivations to want to be on the TV show. Now the story is also being told by a detective. Detective Coleridge. I believe that's his name. And what happens is... He's leading this investigation. He's a veteran police officer, and he's got two younger ones below him who are more hip to what's going on these days. And the, the lead detective is kind of leaning on them for some of the uh, information about what's current and what's hip because he thinks the things that he's saying is just what an old guy would say. So it is Chief Inspector Stanley Spencer Coleridge, who IM, uh, IMDb, who on... Uh, Wikipedia, I'm, I'm not really tongue-tied on this because I didn't really practice. <laughs> Anyways, Chief Inspector Stanley Spencer Coleridge is an old-fashioned but dedicated police officer. And under him, he has Sergeant Hooper, who's a young modern police officer, and Constable Patricia Trish, who is a closeted lesbian police officer, which it really doesn't play into that. I don't understand why they put that in there in the description, but it does come in at the end. Okay, so basically somebody gets killed. We know this at the beginning that somebody gets killed and they have all this videotape evidence because it's a an internet-based TV show that people can log into 24 hours a day. So I think they said there's 30 cameras and 40 microphones or it's either 40 cameras and 30 microphones. The only place they don't have a camera is the washroom, but there is a... Uh, microphone for the people to hear. Now, there actually is a camera and the microphone that the people in the booth can see, but the general public can't. And so it leads up for the first third to the first half of the book, explaining the purpose of the show, the characters, what happens on the first few days. We always know that there's an eviction ceremony. And then we know that there's a murder. And so there's a little bit of time looping back and forth. And then about halfway through the book, the murder occurs. And I'm not going to tell you how the murder occurs, but these are all people obviously in their early to mid-20s, and there's alcohol involved, and there's shenanigans involved, and typical of people that age, that's kind of how they play it out. And then the second half of the book is trying to deduce who is the murderer from the suspects. Either are they people that have been kicked out, 
and it was something that was a revenge deal was it people that were within there and there's jealousies involved because there's big money involved if you win this thing and you also get a bit of a sense it's a bit of a jab at the tv industry because it has written such as that some of the characters don't want to be in the show after somebody died and the people that are running the show are getting so many clicks and views and the ratings are going well that they'll induce them with money and other ways to keep them on the show. It plays itself out. There's a bit of witty banter. There's a bit of back and forth. I couldn't put it down whenever I was reading it. So whenever uh, my wife called it was dinner or I had to do something with Ella or I had to watch a movie for the various podcasts, I'd put this down, but I'd get back onto it as soon as I could. I don't think it's that long. It's maybe 300 pages. Nothing too crazy. And the characters are they're fairly interesting. I mean, there's like eight or nine of the contestants. There's uh, a television crew uh, and the head of the network. There's about four or five of those. There's three police officers who are the main ones. You know, it's done lightheartedly. It's not a gore fest or anything like that. It's a good little mystery. It's a modern Agatha Christie film. So I would definitely recommend Dead Famous by Ben Elton. It's a 2001. I actually got it at the library when they were just giving out discards. You know, they need to make rooms on the shelves. And that's how I got my hands on it. So it's probably not that hard to find. And it's well worth a uh, watch, a read, a listen. However you consume these, it's worth it for you. Okay. I know that wasn't the best review. I stumbled on my words a bit. But that's what happens. Talk to you later. All right, now we get to the portion of the episode where it's cooking with Bill. And I, everybody get their forks and their knives and their spoons and their bowls and their flour and their salt and their cayenne pepper and everything. No, we're not actually going to do any cooking. But I, I do have a couple cooking shows that I do watch. As a lot of you know that I like to watch cooking shows when I'm not doing anything else. You know, watching movies, being a husband, being a dad, being a teacher. If I get some spare time and there's really nothing to watch, I'll watch a cooking show. It's kind of one of my go-tos. So in Canada, we have something called the Food Network. I, I think in the States, you guys have a lot of different food channels. There's got to be something that shows Bobby Flay and uh, Guy Fieri. Now, one that I watched that I wanted to make note for you guys and girls is called Cheese, A Love Story. And you're thinking, Bill, why are you watching a show about cheese? It's kind of like on a European vacation where, where Rusty's sitting in his bed in the, in the hotel room. <laughs> I don't know, is it Germany? And he goes, there's snow and there's cheese. That's all there is. <laughs> but this is a better show. Cheese, a love story, is there's only four parts to it. In the, in the United States, I, do, I did look it up. And if you have Apple TV... This is on Apple TV, so look it up. Cheese, a love story. And their host is Afrim Pristine. Afrim Pristine is one of the foremost cheese masters in the world. He's the, called the Maitre Fromager. In other words, cheese master. But he's not that old a gentleman. He's maybe at the time, maybe his late 30s, early 40s. But he was at that point the youngest in the world. So I'm going to give you the description that they have in the Food Network. It says, host Afrin Pristine, the world's youngest maitre fromager, hits the road in search of the most fascinating cheese-centric adventures, digging into the characters, cheesemakers, and chefs around the world's most noteworthy cheese creations. 
Each hour of this documentary series will focus on our region and its ooey-gooey cheesy dishes, recipes that have made an impact and put that area on the culinary map. So it's a show that basically there's only four episodes. They're each only about an hour long. And Afram goes to Paris, uh, France. He goes to Switzerland. He comes back home to Montreal. And he lives in Toronto. By the way, he's in my football pool. And I've beaten him over the years he's beaten me. That's no reason why I did this review. I just I was like, oh, there's Afram. Okay, he's got a show now. Okay. Anyways, he's an interesting guy. And he visits people all over the world and the different types of cheeses. And he really gets into the nitty-gritty of not just like these really famous palatial estates. No, he goes to the uh, peasants. He goes to the shops. He talks to the chefs. He, he shows you in the various places all over the world the different varieties of cheese. But he does it in a way that you can relate to him. Because, he's if, I mean, he's a person of the people. And he just goes and he tries these different types of cheeses. So when he's in in Paris, he goes to one of the best cheese uh, boutique kind of places and tries the different varieties that they have. When he goes to Switzerland, he goes up in the mountains and they create cheeses and they melt cheese and they make cheese dishes of all kinds. And the same in Montreal and the same in Toronto. It's actually quite good. It might sound boring to you. If you don't like cheese, you're probably still going to like it because it's done in a very easygoing, laid back, not pompous at all. And I mean, there's a couple things on there that I want to try the next time I go to a place that would have the different types of cheeses because it just looks so darn good. So Cheese, A Love Story is worth checking out on Apple. The other show I want to make mention of is called Inside Eats with Rhett and Link. Rhett and Link are two individuals on my favorite YouTube-only show called Good Mythical Morning. They, I think, one of the third or fourth richest, and they got on YouTube when it was first starting, and they're just two guys that do a lot of basically food challenges, not not like grossly eating, but they'll try different types of things, the different varieties, like they might try every single variety of Pringles chips, and then they rate them, or every different type of food on the Burger King menu, or something of that nature. Or they'll try weird foods or different uh, insects. They might eat insects or something. They're not to gross you. They're they're good mythical morning. Check them out. They're very popular. So they, it's become so popular on YouTube that the Food Network gave them their own show. And so I think, I don't know, there's four, five, six episodes. They're all about 45 minutes. And they go in their own irreverent way to various places to see how the food is made. So, for example, I know they went to the Cheesecake Factory. And they discovered not only the, the, how they make the cheesecake, but all the different menu items. And they have a very large menu. I've never been there. You guys in the States have. I thought it was just a restaurant where they did uh, desserts. But going thinking back Big Bang, Big Bang Theory, I, they have other foods. <laughs> you guys would know better than I would. Uh, they go to Chipotle. And they go to one place that does um, meat products that are vegan. So you're not obviously using meat. It's meat alternatives. And they see how that's done. I believe one of them is an ice cream shop. And they try the different varieties of ice cream. I can't remember every single one of them. I have seen them all. And Rhett and Link are, again, they're in their early 40s. 
They're easily relatable. Rhett has a very large beard and a lot of hair. Link is a little bit more prim and proper, but he's still a little bit irreverent. The interplay is really good. See how they are by watching the show. Click on YouTube and check out Rhett and Link. They have good mythical morning. They have more good mythical morning or good mythical morning more, I think it is. And there's a whole offshoot. I think they have their own podcasts. And even the people on the show have their own shows and podcasts. So I can't recommend it enough. It's one that I've watched with my daughter. It's one that I've watched with my wife. It's a show that I've watched. I've shown my classes. They're all relatively family safe. So check out Good Mythical Morning and Inside Eats with Rhett and Link. I don't think you'll regret. And they're not long. They're not going to tax your time. 25 minutes, maybe half an hour, whatever it is. Anyways, I hope you like it. I hope it gives you some cooking ideas. Hello everyone, I would like to go over a movie that I watched just recently on Tubi. I was looking around for something for a summer afternoon in between getting my daughter from camp and cutting the lawn and I found a movie called Unsheltered from 2022. It's an hour and 30 minutes and it is a thriller slash horror film. The IMDb description is in 2017 Five college students set out to escape the path of Mother Nature. When things took a turn, they had to seek shelter and were never seen alive again. The director is Marcus Small, and it stars Raven Wynn, Caleb Martin, Chantel Hill, and Melina Kay, among others. This is basically a film where it's a survival film, but it doesn't get to that for a little while. And let me explain why. What happens is you have these five college students, early 20s, what they were in real life, I'm not quite sure. They went out on a road trip. And a storm is coming and they want to kind of get ahead of the storm and find some shelter before they're kind of told where to go by the authorities. So they're driving in their car, they're early 20s. So you've got, you know, some love triangle kind of things. You've got some social aspects. They're playing with their phones. They're getting here and there. And eventually they run out of gasoline. And before they run out of gasoline, they had asked a homeless gentleman on the side of the road, where can we find a gas station? And the gentleman kind of kindly sends them ahead past the ridge to go to a scrapyard where airplanes and various things have gone to die. And he says, there's a gasoline station up that way. Go right up ahead. Well, they get there, and let's just say it's not the best of accommodations. It's basically an old air hangar. But at that stage of the game, when the storm is on its way, it's the best place they had to go. And when they get there, again, they have to see what food they have. They have to see what clothing they have. Uh, where can they sleep? How can they make this more comfortable? How are they going to ride out this storm? It's basically like a small industrial complex, basically a garage or, you know, a, a Quonset hut where airplanes have been fixed. And so it's not the best of accommodations. It's a bit musty. It's a bit dirty. There's tools around, that kind of thing. But they're going to try to make the best of it that they can. The other issue is without power there, their phones, are not going to be able to stay charged. So they have to figure out who's got more charges left on their phones and what can they do and make the best use of their phones. And they have to kind of formulate a game plan. I think they're just trying to ride it out while D 
dealing with, as I said, there are some complications amongst them. You kind of get into almost teeny bopper stuff with I like you, you like me, we've had affairs, should we tell the girlfriend, should we tell the boyfriend, everybody's together. We got some of that. We got some strained relationships basically based on the situation that they're in. And really, for the first hour, not a lot happens. That's one of my downsides. You know, there's so much character building, but usually if there's character building, there's really interesting dialogue and interplay and a story behind these characters. There really isn't, to be completely blunt. Now, the, the other aspect to this movie is that you get the perspective of the people that are investigating this. There is a found footage element in some of the work and film of the people that are involved, the kids, the, the college kids, they're taking photos and movies with their phones, they're documenting this. So you get a little bit of found footage. But the police profilers and the authorities are also interspersing their point of view as the story is going along. And it all kind of comes together at the end. After about the first hour, you discover that they're not alone in this hangar. And then the survival aspect comes in. You know that there's these five twenty-something nubile people, and some of them are going to get chopped off one by one. Who's going to survive? Who won't? Why is somebody after them? And will the person who's after them get away with what they're doing? And I'm not going to give it away because it is on Tubi. You can watch it. I don't want to say what everything happens because you might actually want to watch this film. And I encourage you. What's good for one person may not be good for another, but I encourage people to watch these movies. Let's just say things get sticky towards the end. Things begin to have interactions with each other that you didn't think would, and the ramifications are played out. Let's just say it that way. Is it a film I'm going to look at again? Absolutely not. Not that I'm not harsh on it, just when you have different films to watch over the year, this isn't going to be the one that I'm going to revisit. Uh, what is my ultimate mark on this? I give it about a four, a four and a half out of ten. I've seen a lot worse, but I've seen a heck of a lot better. So, again, it was literally raining in southern Ontario when I watched it. If you want something to pass 90 minutes on a rainy afternoon, this one will fit the bill. Maybe not the best, but it will fit the bill. If you're looking for one that you're going to sit with your significant other or a bunch of guys or a bunch of girls at a party and have a couple beers or whatever it is, this isn't probably the one for you. But for those of you that like movies where people get chopped off, they go one by one, and you want to see what the final monster is, this might be one if you're a completist. Four and a half out of ten. Take it from Bill. Invest your time, but do it wisely. Thank you. Alrighty, now here's the type of film everybody loves hearing about. When you're searching on Tubi and Prime and Netflix and YouTube and you're looking for something to watch and you really don't have much, you can always find a shark film. Well, that's what I found. I think it was Tubi. Could have been Prime. Not 100% sure. It's been a couple weeks since I've seen this. And this is 2022's Bull Shark. Now, Bull Shark is an hour and 20 minutes, and it basically is what you think it is. It's an action, drama, horror, survival, call it what you will. It's a shark in the water, okay? it's The description is a hungry shark 
begins feeding on unsuspecting lake-goers in a small Texas town. Directed by Brett Bateman, written by Brett Bateman, and it stars Tom Hallam, Billy Blair, and Billy Blair was in, had a small role in Three from Hell as Garbage Man. I'm sorry, I don't remember that one. And he was in Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. And it also has Lindsay Marie Wilson, who was in a, a, at least one or two episodes of Criminal Minds in 2016. All right. So this is a small Texas town. There's a sheriff who's one of those guys that, you know, he's got some issues. He's got some personal issues. He's got a family, a wife who he's no longer married to, and a son that he's trying to keep a relationship together with. He's in this small Texas town. He, you get to know some of the locals and the comings and goings of people in this small town. You know, they're, they're given stereotypical type roles, but something keeps happening. And what's happening is people are dying in the lake from sharks, which in itself isn't that unique, except that they're in a lake and it's fresh water. So how are these sharks getting there? And will the locals actually believe that it's freshwater sharks as opposed to it can't be sharks because they only live in the ocean. I made note that there is actually decent cinematography, better than expected production value, and the acting isn't horrible. You know, I wouldn't exactly call it, you know, Jaws type acting or anything. You know, there's no Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, but you know, for a, a zero budget film, the acting isn't terrible. So, a small town in Texas, there's an alcoholic uninspired game warden. He's not even a sheriff. He's a game warden. And he's facing family and sobriety issues. So he's trying to kick the habit of drinking. He's just not always so successful out there. There's a kill, killer bull shark in a nearby lake. It kills a local woman. The local, and a local individual had acquired a shark in the back of his pickup truck. But all he wanted it for was to pull off the teeth and sell them as trinkets to people coming by, to uh, people that have traveled through town, tourists. But the game warden obviously says, no, 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 you got to get rid of this thing. You can't have this kicking around. If the mayor gets wind of this, you know, you're going to get yourself in some big trouble. Get, get, get this out of here. So the person who had the shark carcass tossed it in the lake. Okay, He knows it was dead. Uh, we actually see it and says it was dead. But people continue to get killed in the local lake, all right? And guess what? We've heard this before. The local mayor wants to keep the news out. He presses the local medical examiner and game warden to keep this information out of the news to make sure that official documents are changed. He's kind of a really interesting character, actually. And we know we've seen this before, okay? You also get some science lessons, you know? Bull shark kidneys can dilute salt and fresh water. I had no idea. But the uh, game warden goes down to the local university, or, or he goes to the local authority who works at the university, and he you know, informs him of this. And, of course, he gets under pressure from the local mayor as well. There's CGI all over the place in this, and it's not great, but it's not as bad as it could be. It could have been worse, and we've seen worse. <laughs> There's some of these shots that I mentioned, the cinematography is pretty good. 
came from drones. And when drone shots are used effectively, they can be pretty good. We all have all seen films where there's too many of those type of shots used. This one actually isn't bad. I'll give them their uh, chops on this one. You know, and of course, the son has come to visit. The father's trying to patch up their relationship. If the son comes, he's at, you know, I think he's 12, 13, 14, in that range. And he's bored. You know, he wants to play his video games or his phone or whatever. And the dad's like, no, 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 go out in the water. You know, go fishing, go swimming, do whatever. And uh, I'm not going to lead you down the path that what happens, but yeah, you can figure something out there. You know, there is an attempt at character development, but there are certain points where you see a fin in the water for the shark. It's obviously not real, okay? <laughs> it's a, I mean, we know it's not real, but it's really obvious it isn't real, okay? All I'm going to say is C4 and a thermos helped save the day, okay? This film actually was more entertaining than I thought it had any right to be. Is it cinematic gold? Absolutely not. Is it one that's going to make you go stay inside as opposed to going out because you want to watch this movie? No, it's not. But again, that Sunday afternoon where you folding laundry or you've finished cutting the grass or you're just looking for some chill time where you don't have to think, Bull Shark is okay. I gave it five and a half out of ten. So in the whole pantheon of shark films, this is probably middle ground compared there's pretty much jaws and then there's a couple others and then there's a whole lot on the bottom end so this would be better than a lot of the stuff on the bottom end but it could have still been better anyways this was my take on this curious to hear your opinion on bull shark send it to nathan bartlebaugh no, i'm just kidding put it in the room and see what you think talk to you guys later all right ladies and gentlemen so now we get to a review of where i do my random YouTube selection. <laughs> I believe that's what this was. I don't think it was Tubi. I don't think it was Prime. I don't think it was Netflix. This is Prime for YouTube. So I looked into my horror section, and I, but I also wanted one with some sci-fi. And I found one that kind of combines the two. Again, a little bit out there. It's not one that I don't think I've ever heard anybody bring up, which quite frankly made me want to watch this movie. This is 1980s, rated R, 1 hour, 36 minutes, scared to death. Sounds about as generic as anything. That could go into a million different directions. Let's see what this film is about. So according to IMDb, an ex-cop, now working as a hack novelist, is called out of retirement to help investigate a string of deaths that appear to be the work of a serial killer but soon are revealed to be the work of the Signor, the synthesized genetic organism. I see now that it is on Tubi. So it was on Tubi, but I think it also is on YouTube and various other streaming services. So who directed this? Well, the director is a name you might know if you dig deep into the horror pantheon. William Malone. And William Malone had a fairly long directorial career. He did the newer version of House on Haunted Hill. Not the 1960s version he did. I think it was 89. And he did the one more recently, Fear.com. So he's done quite a bit. And I think he might even still be in the industry. 
It stars John Stinson, who was in the cult film The Hand, and he was also on the TV show Freddy's Nightmares. It stars Diana Davidson, who was in Dirty Harry. She was uh, one of the girls, I think, that gets shot at the, on a rooftop at the beginning. Uh, David Moses, who right now is in that show Bosch Legacy. He was also on many uh, episodes of Fantasy Island. And he was in the film Creature. Walker Edmiston, who was in Dick Tracy and The Great Mouse Detective, which I can only assume was a voice. Also, by the way, I think that was the last film that uh, Vincent Price did. Anyways, that's beside the uh, point. So the movie ends up with this on the title card, so I thought I'd read it out. The events portrayed in this film, although fictional, are based on scientific fact. If they have not already happened, they soon could. Genetic engineering is real, and soon we may all have to deal with new values and definitions for life and death. Well, you know what? Not that far off. And for 1980, I mean, a lot of these films say these kind of things at the beginning. And, you know, most of them don't always pan out. But this one, the circumstances of this film do definitely do not. But it is a little bit prophetic. Okay, so it opens with a peeping Tom lurking into a house. It turns out to be a man creature who kills a woman. So he's looking at her. You get to see a few things revealed. And she dies. So you know that there's a bit of a creature feature element right off the top. And obviously by the title card, there's a little bit of sci-fi involved in this as well. So let's see how this plays out. So John Stinson, who's a former cop turned into an author, is quirky. He likes to eat atomic rocks, which is basically a Pop Rocks clone. There's a certain charm to this film. Stinson is quirky. He's awkward, but he's almost like an everyman that you just, he may be that friend of yours that's a little bit awkward, but you always invite him to parties or you have him over, or you knew him in high school. That's this guy. He kind of got a heart of gold, but he kind of stumbles around. This film has a low budget, but actually better than expected acting. All right. So Stinson causes a fender bender with Diana Davidson. Okay. But after he gets into the fender bender, you know, she's all ticked off, this, that, and the other. And he's he's very cool and suave. He offers her some atomic rocks. And he actually ends up talking to her and trying to get her phone number to get a date out of her. That's just the kind of guy he is. And you know what? He carries it out. The creature keeps killing female victims. And I think a couple male victims. So the city, I don't think they say what city it is, but the city is getting a lot of kills and the numbers are piling up. So there's pressure on the police to stop this. And the newspapers are having a heyday reporting all of this. Stinson and Davidson get romantically involved. Well, he's just so suave, this guy. This film keeps you intrigued as you don't get a clear shot of the monster early on. Okay? So you don't know bang on what the monster looks like. But you know that there's one there because you see parts of the monster. I'm just going to leave it at that. So Moses, who's one of his police friends, tries to get him on the case. But he wants no part of it, okay? He's out of the police business. But the police are under so much pressure that his friend David Moses is trying to get him back on to do what he can. Because he obviously was a pretty good police officer. As it turned out, 
Davidson gets attacked by a monster. And let's just say it has a wicked tongue. That's all I'm going to say. But she gets so injured that she's on death's door, which is not funny. Well, and we know it's a movie character, but you know what I mean. Turns out that a doctor created a genetically modified creature that he was going to kill. He was doing experiments. He was altering the genetics, wanted to see how things played out. We've seen that in a thousand sci-fi films, especially of the B variety. But it, but he died before he killed it for the medical research. Okay, So the monster is out there. Didn't get killed. The scientist died. This thing is out roaming the world. The monster is getting ready to reproduce. Nothing worse than a horny monster looking to spread its seed to unknowing victims. <laughs> Again, not that uncommon in the B side of sci-fi films, especially from about 75 to 1985. So Stinson has a, a huge gun, like, like reminiscent of Dirty Harry, and he decides to get down in there and try to solve the problem, all right? Solve the crime. Stinson and a lab tech, kind of a nerdy girl, but I mean, you know she's an attractive girl, but they try to make her all nerdied up. They go searching for the creature down in the depths and dregs of the sewers. So in his heart, Stinson wants to make sure that everything works out, and he's determined to get down there. There's some cheap but decent attempts at special effects. There's a fun chase and search through the sewers and a manufacturing factory. Okay, we've seen this again a lot of times where they go through these long corridors and in the dark and in the gooeyness. You don't know where you're stepping and a creature is after you. And the last thing I put, Stinson always gets the ladies. It makes you, <laughs> it made me laugh because despite, you know, the creatures and this, that and the other. And he's not exactly Tom Cruise out there, but he is a little bit suave, kind of like that buddy of yours that ends up getting the hot date. And you're not sure why. They just know how to talk to the opposite sex. That's exactly like Stinson. It's a low budget, but it's quirky. The acting is actually fairly decent, and it's fun. I gave it a 6.5 out of 10. I think it's worth it. I think Nathan will enjoy watching this one. And I think you guys and girls will, especially if you, you know, can appreciate a B-film. You can appreciate, you know, this isn't quite Roger Corman, but it's not that far removed from a Roger Corman film. Although... It kind of takes you in some different directions, but that's okay. That's the fun of this film. The last thing I did put was this film could easily be remade today, either at the B level or at the higher level, with a little bit of money put into the special effects and maybe some of the sets. Because quite frankly, some of the sets look like it was just the apartment of the director or the <laughs> producer or the film set of the makeup person. So... Scared to Death, 1980. I say watch it. Again, Tubi is your guaranteed place to find it. It's probably on YouTube or Prime as well. Easy to find, fun to watch, and it's a good afternoon movie. Anyways, I'll leave it up for you to decide. And now on to a movie that I went to Tubi, and I just happened to go on the front page, and it always has a list of films that are about to leave the service. And I always check it over just in case there's something that I want to check out before it goes. And I came across one that I hadn't seen since probably the year it came out. 
And I had talked to Nathan about this one recently, and he said he actually saw it in the theater. And it made me smile just looking at the title, and I had to check it out. Again, again, I had seen it, but it had probably honestly been about 20 years. But it brought a smile to my face. I wanted to check it out before. It went vamos, and that's 2001, the comedy Rat Race. An hour 52, PG-13, and again, just thinking of the movie and the title, brings a smile to my face, all right? Rat Race is one of those films that has a large ensemble cast, and I'll describe why. A Las Vegas casino magnet, determined to find a new avenue for wagering, sets up a race for money. Does that sound familiar? There have been a few films that have done that, most notably Cannonball Run. But again, there are others that have alluded to this. It's a time-honored film trope or a storyline that gets used from time to time. And this one kind of puts its own little spin on it. Now, this one was directed by a name you'll recognize, Jerry Zucker, who among the films he's directed are Airplane, Top Secret, Ruthless People, and Ghost. So he's kind of got that comedy slapstick aspect in there. Although Ghost is not in the same vein as these other ones, it is one that uses some comedy, but a little bit more drama. Okay. Now the cast is fairly large, so I'm going to go over some of them. Breckenmeyer, you'll recognize. Probably my other favorite road trip by him is Road Trip. But he also did Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. He was in that one. And he also has small parts in Robot Chicken amongst his resume. There's Amy Smart, who you'll recognize when you see her. She was in Crank, The Butterfly Effect, Barely Legal. There was Vince Villeneuve, who was in Epic Movie and Firewall. There's Miss Whoopi Goldberg. There's Mr. Rowan Atkinson. There's Mr. John Cleese. There's Dave Thomas from SCTV fame, whom I love. Paul Rodriguez, the comedian. Dean Kane, Mr. Superman is in it. Wayne Knight, who famously portrayed Newman in Seinfeld. And he was also obviously in Jurassic Park as Nidri. Colleen Camp, who was in Clue and Wayne's World. Kathy Najimy from Hocus Pocus and Sister Act. The cast goes on and on. You can dig deeper and deeper. This is a fun film. Is it a cinematic masterpiece? No. Is it even the best film of its type? Probably not. But it is Smile, and for me it has a bit of nostalgia. I think anybody who's in the age of 35 to 45 to 50 has probably seen this and smiles whenever they think about it. Okay? So a group of seven individuals in Las Vegas are at a hotel. And they are brought up to a room by John Cleese. They're kind of invited up. They're not sure why. Cleese enters the room. Okay? After a bit of a preamble, six keys are given to these guests, who we will call contestants. And they're given an opportunity to win $2 million, but they have to find a red duffel bag in a locker. And they're given the keys to a car, and they said, go. And so John Cleese says, off you go. And they all kind of stand there around, and they just kind of say, I'm not going to do this. No, this is dumb. I'm not going to do this. I'm against this kind of thing. I'm just here to 
do whatever it is that I was going to do in Vegas. But again, guess what? The obvious happens and they all want to go out for the money. So <laughs> they all go to Silver City, New Mexico to go find this red duffel bag at a train station. And hilarity ensues because you can only imagine these different people in different circumstances are with their families and their families don't know what they're up to and they all of a sudden decide to take off. All right. So they all kind of get however they are going to get there. Uh, one of the other actors in this is Seth Green. I forgot to mention Seth Green. I don't know how I could forget Seth Green. So Gloria Allred. There's just a whole ton of people in this. Okay. So there's a large cast of characters, various backgrounds. The money is in a locker in the train station. And they have transmitting devices on their keychain. So they can always be looked at. Oh, the other person is in here that's hilarious is John Lovitz. John Lovitz is absolutely hilarious in just about everything he's in, and he brings it all to the table here. Each of the characters has their quirks, okay? So Rowan Atkinson has narcolepsy, okay? Uh, oh, Mr. Gooding, Cuba Gooding Jr. is in this. I get another one I never mentioned. Cuba Gooding Jr. is a football ref who made a coin-flipping accident. And all of America is all over them because it was a big game on national TV, and a lot of betters lost a lot of money. Goldberg and Chapman are a mom and daughter reuniting. Lovitz brings Najimi and family. So <laughs> Najimi plays the wife and John Lovitz decides to go and he doesn't tell them why, they, why they're going all of a sudden out of their way to go somewhere else. But they <laughs> are in their car driving fast. It's a hilarious scene. Green and Vluf are just odd brothers who I don't really want to explain a lot about them. You just got to watch and figure it out they're kind of antagonists protagonists they're they're just goofballs in this film okay it's basically a modernized cannonball run of sorts okay cleese is a rich eccentric who sets up the race for his rich friends to bet on it so they're sitting back at the hotel doing all these wild bets on various funny activities there's one involving a lady of the night who comes to the room and they have to do certain things. Don't worry, it's nothing sexual or anything. It's just the the event happens, and then everybody pops in from behind saying, oh, she said she'd do this. She said she'd do that. Okay, I bet so much money. So, you know, they're making bets on everything. But the big bet is who's going to win the race, okay? You know, Kathy Bates makes a cameo, and Meyer hooks up with Smart, who's a helicopter pilot who flies him to New Mexico. And they each have their own agenda there. Uh, a smart uh, says that she wants to get back at her boyfriend because she sees him cheating. And to, there's a whole bunch of things that goes on. The, one of the best scenes in the film is John Lovitz and his family go and they stop and they go to a museum. And it turns out the museum is a Nazi museum. <laughs> and they have to, they, but they try to get out of it. And they end up taking a car from the museum to drive off in. Turns out it was uh, Hitler's car, <laughs> Hitler's vehicle, <laughs> and they're racing away and all the Nazis are after them. It's a really good scene, okay? There's a really good 60s classic soundtrack to it. Cuba Gooding Jr. commandeers a bus full of I Love Lucy convention goers. And you can only imagine the hijinks that happens with that, okay? Green and Bluff get distracted by women on the road and end up 
in a big wheel truck race at the local track. And it is absolutely hilarious. There's, you can only imagine, you know, there's, it's not dirty jokes. It's not over the top, anything that you couldn't watch with your kids. It's just silly. And they get from X to Y. And people that are parents will get it. People that have been on long road trips with their families will get it. People are just like observational humor. I mean, Rowan Atkinson with his narcolepsy that comes into play a few times. It, It's a funny film, okay? And at the end of the day, I'm not going to say what happens, who gets there, who wins, what happens to the money. You're going to have to watch to figure, figure it out. But at the end, there's an appearance by Smouth Mass. Smash Mouth Mason and they end up at a big concert I hadn't seen Smash Mouth in years so it was funny seeing that back again and you forget how big a song that they had and how big they were at a certain time you know this is very early 2000s okay I I, I, did, I don't know if I gave it a rating I'd give it about a 7, 7.5 but it's one of those check your brain at the door if you're feeling crappy it's going to lift you up if you're feeling good, it's going to make you feel even higher, especially if you're, again, in that age group, especially 37 to 50, it's just going to put a smile on your face. So Rat Race from 2001, I, I'm still smiling talking about it. It's a movie that, you know, it's not going to be up there with the greatest comedies of all time, but it is one that will make you laugh. And now for something completely different. No, I'm just kidding. I thought it would sound cool. But it is something that I did watch that I'm going to talk about that is a little different. It's a little something outside of what we normally talk about or outside of my wheelhouse. But again, I basically played YouTube Roulette. I was looking around, just looking for something to watch. And I was looking to do something in the sci-fi uh, version of movies because I don't tend to do enough of those, I don't think. So, but I wanted something that wasn't, you know, within the last five years, which everyone will know about, but something before that. So I went all the way back to 1953. And on YouTube, I found a movie, an innocuous sounding movie. It's an hour and nine minutes called Planet Outlaws. Bum, 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 bum. What does that mean? Is that a, a country and western set in the outer space? Is that uh, one with spaceships shooting at each other? Is this talk about people that shouldn't be in outer space, like people that have committed crimes and criminals that are out doing their thing in different planets? I had no idea. Well, it turns out it's a Buck Rogers film. And those of you familiar with the history of sci-fi and serial films and B-films will know that Buck Rogers did a whole series of B-films as basically the type of film that kids would come in and watch and so that the parents if they went there's something for the kids and there'd be something for the adults or it'd be something that they all could enjoy because it was just pretty schlocky but i personally on my level i had never seen any of them and so this other than i've seen some of the modern day buck rogers material but nothing that went back to the 50s i have seen my fair share of 50s movies in the sci-fi region but they tend to be the animal disasters or the atomic war things or roger corman type of stuff or you know interplanetary things from way back when but i haven't seen any of the buck rogers so i was actually once i found out what it was i was really intrigued by it so this is from 1953 the synopsis on imdb is as follows 
A 20th century pilot named Buck Rogers and his young friend Buddy Wade awake from 500 years in suspended animation to find that the world has been taken over by the outlaw army of Killer Kane. Now, not knowing the movies or the timeline or anything prior or anything post, I don't know if Killer Kane is an ongoing antagonist. I don't know if he's an enemy or if it's just a one-off for this. Somebody let me know. Somebody let Nathan know. He probably knows. He's probably laughing his butt off at me right now. So what's the people behind the scenes on this? Okay. So this was directed by an individual, two individuals, Ford Beebe and Samuel A. Goodkind. Now, Ford Beebe did a movie directed called The Invisible Man's Revenge, assumably one of the sequels to The Invisible Man. And he also did... Flash Gordon conquers the universe. So he obviously has some familiarity with this world as he's done. I'm not sure if this was before or after, but obviously if it's after, he did a good enough job on this one to keep going. Samuel A. Goodkind did Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. So Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, sci-fi, 1950s, they have obviously been in the game. Now, it stars who the person that you're probably familiar with is Buster Crab, played Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Surprise, surprise. So he is pretty prominent in this. Constance Moore, who was in Buck Rogers, but was also in a movie much later called Atlantic City, which I remember watching with Burt Lancaster. I thought it was the late 70s. might have been early 80s. I'm not sure. And Jackie Moran who was in Buck Rogers and Gone with the Wind. Those are the three main ones. There's an ensemble cast. I'm not all that familiar with some of the actors, but you can look them up on IMDb. So what happens is the film opens with a narrator talking about UFOs and space travel and the possibilities of what's to come with science. It also mentions that in 2000, space travel may be commonplace. Well, it didn't, not quite 2000, but it wasn't that long ago that people started going up to space who had the money. I remember Mr. Shatner went up at an advanced age and was blown away by outer space. So this is not that far-fetched a timeline or a storyline. Now, this movie has B-level effects and it feels it, all right? But there's a fun pulpy feel to this. Because you know that this is under budget, but this obviously had a cult following among the kids. And now I think it's grasped a cult following among the adults. So there's something to it. Is it cheap? Yes. But people sometimes love that kind of thing. So Buck had been on a global mission in space in 1938 when he was in suspended animation. And he was found 500 years later, along with a young helper, Buddy Wade. Rogers is found and by Earth's leaders, and the world is controlled by Killer Kane and evil outlaws, and he needs to be stopped. Who better than Buck Rogers to stop the evil Killer Kane? Evil Kane. The Killer Kane? Mr. Kane. <laughs> to be stopped, okay? There are some pretty funky sound effects, like a foghorn. 
that gets used in the flying of the spaceships. You can tell that they were just using whatever was in the studio to get them through. As Buck and Buddy fly in the sky. Rogers tries to make allies with the other planets. There's a little bit of interplanetary diplomacy trying to get along here. And he's going to these other planets. He's trying to rally them to go on his side. And some of them are on Killer Kane's side. And, you know, they've got to try to figure things out and get along to be able to collaborate to stop Mr. Kane. Kane finds out Rogers is coming for, from an envoy from Saturn. Okay, so Buck has gone up to Saturn. He's kind of trying to rally the troops there. And they use a gravity belt. Rogers goes to the Earth to stop Kane. All right, they are cheap effects, as I've said. But, I wrote down, better than Ed Wood. <laughs> so... <laughs> Now, even though Ed Wood might have been a little bit in the future, although probably not that much far in the future for 1953, the Wood uh, effects are not even up to Buck Rogers standard. So Buck Rogers firmly planted in the middle. So there's some space fighting and interplanetary diplomacy. Killer Kane is not menacing looking. Let's just put it that way. Again, Rogers gains diplomatic and military support from the people at Saturn. The people at Saturn are always good, whether they be making vehicles or helping interplanetary diplomacy. <laughs> you know, there's not a ton of action in this, all right? And the score was quite a bit overbearing for my liking. Buck makes a final trip to get to Kane. I'm not going to say what happens. I want to keep you on the edge of your seat to see if Killer Kane is taken down or if Buck Rogers gets rebuffed. It's uninspired, I would say, is how I called it. But it was entertaining enough. It's enough that they can continue the series, that Buck Rogers can have another adventure, and that there are more enemies still to be found. I gave it a 6 out of 10, all right? Is it earth-shattering? Is it, you know, it's is it among them with the sci-fi of the time? Like, is it a them? No. But... Again, entertaining enough for the kids to want to keep watching, for the theaters to sell popcorn, and for the parents to have some entertainment while they watch this. All right? Take that for what you will. Sci-Fi Minute from Bill. Over and out. And now to a film that's a little bit different than the kind of thing that I normally review, but in a way, it's very much in my wheelhouse. So I was looking around for something to watch, and I went on to Prime, and I like documentaries from time to time, so I went into their documentaries, and this is Prime Canada, so I'm not 100% sure if this is on Prime USA, but I'm sure if you look around, you can find it. So I looked under the category documentaries, and I found one from 2007, an hour and 13 minutes, called Willard, the Hermit of Gully Lake. The title itself <laughs> kind of drew me in. I was intrigued by it. So I thought, okay, it's only 73 minutes or whatever it is. I'm going to check it out. Now, everybody here is probably aware that I have an honors history degree. And so this has a history tie-in. That's why I said it's a little bit in my wheelhouse. And there's some Canadiana in it. Between the two, I was hooked. And then when you figure out who the narrator is, there's the third uh, star for it. So here's the description on IMDb. In the 1940s, American-born Willard McDonald jumped his troop train heading to World War II. Fearing authorities, he lived as a hermit deep in the northern wilderness of Nova Scotia, Canada for more than 60 years 
inspiring folklore for generations. That really does sound interesting. Whether you're a history person, whether you like documentaries, whether you're somebody who enjoys war or anything Canadiana or, you know, things in the woods, I think it's going to pull you in. The director is Amy Goldberg, and the only star, and that's the narrator, other than Willard himself, is Mr. Randy Bachman. And Randy Bachman, for those who aren't aware, was the lead guitarist and singer for the Guest Who, the, the Guest Who, what am I saying? The Guess Who and Bachman Turner Overdrive. Taking care of business, looking out for number one, rolling on the highway, these eyes, American woman. He's involved in all those songs. So Randy Bachman's still around today. He's got a good voice. He has a CBC radio show called Vinyl Tap. If you ever are interested in the stories behind music, check him out. But I digress. Back to Willard, the Hermit of Belly Lake. So this is done documentary style. And so what we find out is that Willard Kitchener MacDonald had served time as a conscripted soldier in Canada. So in World War II, there was some conscription, and they were promised that if they joined and they did their duty, they wouldn't be sent overseas. Okay. He thought he had done his duty, but as it turns out, as the war progressed, uh, England and Canada and the Allied nations needed more bodies because they were going to go for their big D-Day invasion. And so those that had been conscripted were being sent out. And Mr. McDonald in the United States did not want to be sent out. And they didn't really get into reasons why. He just didn't. So when he was on his train with his army recruits, he jumped out and went into the wilderness. Now, he must have been in Canada at the time because of where he ended up being. I don't know, maybe there was some kind of collaborative training with the U.S. and Canada or England, etc. He ended up in the forest. And so, of the 38,500 men that were conscripted, I'm going to say this is about 1943, I'm going to guess on that, 6,300 of them actually deserted. And the police and the military police went out and searched for most of them. And I think they pretty well found most of them either dead alive or otherwise, but they never found William Kitchener McDonald. So he ended up living as a hermit and a woodsman in the forest of rural Nova Scotia. He, I don't know if he was a really educated man, but I do know that he was able to read and we find out that he's able to play the violin. He was musical. He was obviously resourceful. He was a very tough man. So this documentary story told of his life and his survival by friends and those who knew him and acquaintances. It's a series of interviews from people that knew of him back when he was in the military, people that knew of him because they came across him in the woods, and people that came across him because he did go from, into town from time to time. He went to church. Uh, he had to go to the general store, and there were some people that were in town that felt that they could help him out, and they would go visit him from time to time, okay? So as I said, he was talented as a musician, as a musician. He could play the violin and the guitar, and he lived off the land. He basically made himself a hut, a mini cabin. You know, he was avant-garde in terms of tiny houses, because the, the house that he lived in was maybe, I'm going to say, 300 square feet. 
But he was able to cobble together a little stove, and people from time to time would bring him library books. Uh, the local librarian actually would have some sent out because he would come into the library and ask for certain ones. And whoever was at the library knew where his locale was because they would send him out. People would donate him things, uh, wine or food or clothing, etc. So there's video footage of Willard and there's interviews. He had died by the time this documentary was aired and was being filmed. But they obviously were able to get people from around town. So they had the local pastor. Yeah, as I said, friends. They had uh, one that was possibly a relative of him. They had people that would come and visited him. Uh, people from town, people from the government. All kinds of people that had come across him. Can you just imagine living in this rural Nova Scotian forest in this hut? Especially in the winter time. Okay, the climate, the living conditions. And when he went in there, he was, I'm going to say, in his early 20s. And he lived there for, I'm going to say, 50 some odd years. How tough you have to be. What did he do? He literally lived off the land. He hunted, he foraged, he, he sold furs from time to time. He'd gone hunting and he would get the furs of what he caught and he'd sell them. He made axe handles and he sold them. He fished for his food. He literally lived hand to mouth with what was around him. And you can imagine living in these kind of conditions. You know, occasionally there might be a hole in the roof. Occasionally there might be a very heavy snowstorm. Occasionally animals might come around. But he survived there a long time. This was essentially a character piece. The stories told by people told the picture. He was born in Massachusetts in 1916, but he was born to Canadian missionaries. So there's the link why he came up to Canada. He would have friends and acquaintances bring him food, clothing, money, and he eventually got an old age pension because it was a woman from the government that wanted to make sure that he got what was owed to him. So they, she took up his cause and he got old age pension sent to him. Not only that, he had a brand new fancy cabin built, but good old Kitchener didn't want any part of it. He didn't want to move in, and eventually a fire burnt down his cabin. So everyone's looking for him because his cabin had burnt down, his old cabin. He wouldn't move into the new cabin, and so he just kind of went back into the forest. But at this point, I would say he was probably in his mid to late 80s, okay? So... Imagine anybody in their mid to late 80s in the forest of a cold nation trying to live off the land. I mean, you've got immune issues. You've got to deal with the temperature. You've got to deal with animals. You've got to make sure you're nourished. You know, there's sanitary things, you know. So eventually he did pass away. He went missing. People put out search parties for him. They found him under a tree and he had passed on. So, the question at the end of the day is, was this man, Willard, someone who should be pitied? Or is he someone who should be admired? Or is he someone that should be admonished? He should never have skipped the train. He should have done his duty for Canada or the U.S. or the Allied forces. Or should he be, should he be seen as a hero for standing up for his rights or his convictions 
and not going to war and putting herself through this and surviving for 50 some odd years out in the forest. It was well told and engaging, or was it engaging enough? That's the thing. It became a lot of diatribe and stories and small talk about this man. And, you know, the same sort of stories came out time after time after time. And, and, and quite frankly, from the interview clips we saw of Willard, he really wasn't one of the most interesting of fellows. <laughs> but, I mean, he obviously didn't get a lot of interaction either, and he wasn't very worldly. So, I guess, what can you expect? For me, this film is a 7 out of 10. If you can find this film, Willard the Hermit of Gully Lake, it's worth a watch. It's not a heavy watch. Again, if you're someone who likes documentaries, if you're like someone who likes war stories, if you're like someone who just likes a, an interesting tale that you probably haven't heard every day, this is worth your time. So check it out if you can. Willard, the Hermit of Gully Lake, is worth a real good watch. Hello, I'm going to review a movie that I watched after I'd cleaned up my trailer. I was sitting, I'd finished my lunch, I was just chilling, spending some time on the couch, needing to rest. I thought I'd go to Tubi, like I do a lot of times, and just kind of see what comes up. Often I just see the movies where they say, you might like, or whatever is first on the list, because I'm a glutton for punishment, and I'll watch just about anything. So it came up 2017's Circus Came. It's got a scary-looking clown on the front. It's got a balloon in its hand, a red balloon, a very ominous of it, obviously, kind of playing off that. It has the tagline, let the games begin. So let me let you know a little bit about Circus Kane. The synopsis on IMDb is, a reclusive circus master invites a group of social media stars to his house of haunts. Anyone who can make it out before being scared into submission will earn $250,000. But the stars soon learn that they are not only competing for money, but also fighting for their lives. This was directed by Christopher Ray, who obviously does a lot of lower-budgeted films, and he did the infamous Two-Headed Shark Attack and Three-Headed Shark Attack, among others. The main star you might know, but not in this form. That may sound weird. This main star that is listed number one is Jonathan Lipnicki. Now, Jonathan Lipnicki is an actor that, if you remember the movie Jerry Maguire, he was the young boy in that. But he was also a voice in one of the Stuart Little films, and he was in an episode of the more recent TV series, The Resident. He actually has more than I realized. Also is Tim Abel, who was in We Were Soldiers and uh, an episode of CSI New York. But he was also in the music department for the movie Greenland and part of the additional crew for Suicide Squad. So he's obviously in the business, and he kind of moves around into different roles. There's the infamous Richard Mole, who is in movies and t television, most notably Night Court as Bull. He was also in House and the infamous Ghost Shark, amongst others. He does a lot of independent films these days. There's also Mark Christopher Lawrence, who had a small part in Terminator 2 Judgment Day and K-Pax. And Ted Monty who was in the TV series Westworld and had a small role as an FBI agent in The Silence of the Lambs. 
He was obviously a much younger man then. So, what really is this about? Well, a group of kids who are in the social media world, be it bloggers, be it YouTubers, be it TikTokers, whatever it is, they all kind of receive a golden ticket offer. And they meet at a random location. I don't know how this location was chosen. It looked like it was outside of a prison prison wall. <laughs> Maybe it was a street corner. I'm not sure what it was. But they all meet there. They're all, I would say, between the ages of, I don't know, 1920. And there's one, Ted Monty is probably in his mid to late 30s. So they're all kind of getting to know each other and figuring out why they think they're there. When a van shows up. Now, the van has armed clowns. Yes, that sounds weird, but they are armed clowns. And they bring them into this van, and they are driven off. And within the van, there is video a video machine that has a screen on it. And it has posters, everything about this Balthazar Kane, the circus Kane, who apparently was, at one point in the story, a famous clown of horror movie fame. And they also created a song about him because he had been sent to jail for a, a reputed murder. And that gives him, you know, an infamous quality. You know, he's this scary real-life clown that actually killed someone and was sent to prison who's diabolical. So everybody's like, oh, I know him. Or I'm only 1920. How would I know him? Blah, 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 blah. So you get to know the characters a little bit. But what happens is they're taken to this big creepy house, the Graves Horror of Nature, uh, very reminiscent of a scary spooky house in your favorite horror movie. And if you survive the night, you get $250,000. So everybody's like, woohoo, yeah, absolutely. They're all full of machismo and they all think, or the, the ladies just think they got what it takes. They're going to get themselves through the night. They're going to, they figure it's, you know, a bit of a party time. They're going to go there and celebrate each other and maybe hook up or get some adventure in the house with the circus king. And at the end of the day, they'll walk out with 250000 So this film really is a take on the House on Haunted Hill, the any, your favorite spooky house. But it's also a survival film. There's seven of them. You just don't know how many will survive, if any will survive. But the story is told twofold. One by the people in the story, so it's a standard narrative, but there also is cuts here and there to the final surviving person at the police station, which is one of my downfalls to the film, that other than its lower budget, and you know, sometimes these kind of films, you have pretty questionable acting or some plot holes, but you actually find out who the person is that survives. You know that there's a survivor. And I'm not giving anything away that's shown in the first two, three minutes. So the guessing game is done. But you, I guess you want to see and find out how it happens. Okay? There are some fun practical effects. There is a lot of blood at various points. Towards the end, one of the main characters is drenched in blood. Okay? There are a good use of a chainsaw. And there's some creepy devices that are used. There are elements of of the movie Saw. 
So basically, these group of seven people walk around the house, and in each room, there's challenges and clues. And you have to subsequently move from room to room to room to room to get to the end, like we haven't heard that before, in order to survive, to get through. But this quickly becomes a game of survival as opposed to, obviously, a game of fun or a night of joviality or anything like that. All right. So the group has to perform certain tasks depending on who makes it through the room. And it's almost like an escape room because there are clues and you have to figure it out. Kind of like Saw. It's also reminiscent of the film Cube where you have to go from spot to spot and there's various uh, tasks that need to be performed in order for you to get to the next room. Okay. So, for example, there is one of the rooms where there's a moment very similar to the pit and the pendulum, if you've seen that film, or the very incantations of pit and the pendulum. Or there's parts from Cube, where there's lasers and things shining out of the air. In these, and Saw, where there's needles involved and keys involved and sharp objects involved. We've all seen these kind of things. So, another one of my negatives to this is it basically borrows tropes from all other movies that you've seen before. Killer Clowns, it's obviously alluding to The Fun House, Toby Hooper, or It. And it's uh, alluding to all of your survival films where there's going to be a final girl or a final guy. And it's getting through these series of mazes of tasks that you have to perform. I will say that the acting is actually probably a bit better than I would expect for this kind of film. I believe it's an uncorked entertainment film. And whenever you see uncorked entertainment, you're kind of like, oh boy. But this one wasn't bad, actually. Uh, I've seen a lot worse films than this. Trust me, I've reviewed them and you've heard some lots of uh, worse films than this. So there is lots of blood. There are elements of Saw in more ways than one. And that's all I'm going to say. When we do get to see Balthazar Kane, he reminds me of a certain Star Trek character at certain points. And at other points, he reminds me of Rob Zombie in the way he looks. And you'll understand when you see the film. And the ending does have a twist. Uh, Richard Maul has a very small role as kind of like the Lurch. Actually, I think one of the characters actually calls him Lurch. He's kind of the purveyor of the house. He lets people in. He's hired help, but he's obviously a a big man and then there's these seven people who kind of survive through and then there's Balthazar Kane okay nothing groundbreaking here nothing that you're gonna go holy crap this just scared the bejesus out of me but it is actually better acted than you think there are lots of practical effects which I really like and for an uncorked entertainment it is probably on the top end of their catalog, let's just call it that. Is it great? No. But could you do worse with a rainy afternoon or an afternoon where you just want to watch it and do well, something else at the same time? Yeah, it's pretty good. I give it a 6 out of 10. You might, I might even you know, put a gun to my head. You could give, give it a 6.5. I don't think it's a 7, but it is not too bad. So, again, if you're flipping around Tubi, check out Circus King if that is something that you would be interested in. Thank you for listening. Hello, it's Bill again. I'm literally sitting around the campfire and I just finished a book that I thought you guys would want to know about. It's written by John Sanford 
It's a novel about a detective named Virgil Flowers, and it's called Mad River. And the book is from 2012, and it's published by Berkeley, a novel by Berkeley. It's a New York Times bestseller. And, well, the author is. I don't know if this book is exactly, but John, John Sanford is well known. And it's a book about a detective that's following a murder case, but not any other murder case. It is a group of three individuals who have gone on down in Minnesota, in rural Minnesota, to kill a group of people house to house. And they're kind of a Bonnie and Clyde going around and looking for money and looking for houses. And they're basically these three characters. Two of them are a couple, and one of them is a friend who's unfortunately involved in it. And it has people chasing money, looking for fame, looking to get out of the small town, trying to make it to Hollywood. And this investigator, Virgil Flowers, from the uh, FBI, well, it's their equivalent. They don't call it the FBI. They call it something else. But it's basically a federal agency chasing them down, having to deal with small-town cops and seeing if corruption, if uh, dwindling amount of clues will get them there, and if they've solved the crime. It gets pretty tense. It's pretty interesting. It's well-written. And I think it's well worth reading. It's a four, four out of five for me. Four and a half I could push myself to because I'm not a huge reader in terms of fast reading. And I read it in about three days. It's not a long book. It's maybe 420 pages or so. But for me, just sitting around the campfire, sitting around the trailer. Oh, by the way, I'm at my trailer. It's my kind of book. And here's my daughter, Ella, who wants to wish everybody a happy 4th of July. Happy 4th of July. There you go. There you have it. So, pick up Mad River by John Sanford. I say it's a good book. Oh, and my daughter says, and marshmallows. Because right now her face is full of sticky marshmallows. And I'm going to send a picture to Nathan to put it up, okay? All right, guys. Here's that review. And hopefully it blends in with the rest. Bye-bye. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.